Just because it's legal doesn't mean it's ethical. You're listening to Buff Speak, the official podcast of the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University. I am Dr. Nick Gerlich, your host, as we meet up with the thought leaders making an impact today. Sometimes there's simply so much to talk about in our podcast episodes that one session just doesn't cut it. And we don't want to do marathons anyway. I'm, you know, an hour, hour, five minutes, something like that is good, but we don't want to do three hours. So anyway, that's what found us splitting our time with Brennan Matthews in episodes three and four last fall. And when I interviewed my colleague Joanna Kimball in the spring, we quickly realized we were leaving a lot of business law topics on the table. It's simply a subject with a lot going on, especially right now, as we will see in a few minutes. Texas is a hotbed of legal activity, and in this episode, we're going to look exclusively at law topics having their day in Texas courts. You may not have heard about all of them, but one in particular will likely be recognized by most local listeners, if only because it played out in Amarillo. My guest once again today is my B-Law colleague, Joanna Kimball. Welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be back. If I have learned anything the last few months, it is that business law is just as much an evergreen topic as is my own field of marketing. There's always something new happening, things that demand our attention. But before we focus on Texas alone, we'll start with a broader phenomenon that occurs nationally, but we'll look at it through the lens of Texas anyway. And as we'll discuss in a bit, it has very deep connections here. That phenomenon is forum shopping. Joanna, what is forum shopping? I mean, I'm pretty sure it has nothing to do with perusing designer clothing at the forum shops in Las Vegas. Unfortunately, (laughs) forum shopping is, well, it's a strategic business maneuver, essentially. It's when usually a company says, I want to have the best possible chance of winning a court case. Where can I go to either improve my chances or another way to look at it, reduce my risk of losing? So they'll look for a court that's more likely to be in their favor. So why would a plaintiff want to go to all this effort? I mean, there might be significant expense in having to travel to another city or state just to appear in court. Ah, but you have to do a classic cost-benefit analysis. What are the costs of traveling to that particular court versus what could we win in the lawsuit or what would be the cost if we lost? So what specifically are plaintiffs looking for when they go forum shopping? It depends on the situation. It could be, does the judge have a good knowledge base of the particular subject matter Uh, For example, with intellectual property law, are they well-versed in that? Or it could be, is the judge more likely to allow this kind of a lawsuit, given the circumstances and how they interpret the rules? For example, bankruptcy cases. You've also told me that rural areas are common targets for forum shopping. Why is this, and are there any implications for potential outcomes? Well, this uh, really came to light a few years ago, um, more the early 2000s, because it was noticed that a lot of 
intellectual property cases, you know, patents, copyrights, and trademarks, those cases were going to a particular court in Texas and then another court in Delaware. And there were questions about why is the rural area being targeted? Now, there, there was one uh, theory put forth in a, in a Texas Monthly article that if you can get into these more rural areas, then maybe the judge there is not going to dig as deep into the law. They're going to make quicker, more surface-level decisions in these rural places. I don't know how much credence there is to that, but it was a noticed trend and, well, eventually became something the U.S. Supreme Court had to address. Yeah, you mentioned that Texas city. That would have been Marshall, Texas. Yes. A small city located in the Piney Woods in the far east part of the state along I-20. It had the notoriety of becoming a courtroom battleground for patent cases earlier this century. What was going on there? And, you know, these cases involved many global companies that had no ties whatsoever to Marshall, and most of them not even to the state of Texas. There were intellectual property case hunters, and the Internet helped make this possible. They would go searching for intellectual property that was not being well protected, but where the rights were clearly being infringed, and they would go out and say, hey, we can get a lawyer to represent you, or they would try to go in and scoop up some of the intellectual property rights themselves. So there was a specific market out there for intellectual property rights, and they needed the courts to help monetize that. Well, interestingly, there was a positive economic impact from all these cases, regardless of outcomes, because basically what happened was legal tourism. You had all these out-of-towners coming to a small town, and they're spending money. They're staying in hotels, dining in posh restaurants that you would never expect to find in a little place like Marshall. Can you expand on this phenomenon? Well, we actually saw something similar related to uh, the pandemic when a lot of large companies sent their workers away from the offices to work from home. Restaurants that were near those office buildings in many cases ended up shutting down and some of them never reopened because they lost their clientele. Well, this is the flip side in Marshall. This is because a particular business or type of business came to the area that encouraged a particular economy. And you'll see that initially with restaurants, of course, and then hotels would be the second. Texas Monthly referred to Marshall as the intellectual property equivalent of a speed trap. (laughs) Describe the laws and so forth that allowed companies to do this even when they're wasn't a shiny headquarters building for many miles. Well, again, the internet played a big part in it. People being able to investigate where intellectual property rights weren't being well guarded and then trying to either scoop them up or, again, telling companies you need to sue to protect your rights. And that doesn't require an office building. That just requires people who understand the, the nature of intellectual property In some cases, people who are just very computer savvy could get into issues like going into the programming code behind somebody's web page and determining what percentage of that had been copied from another web page and therefore somebody's rights have been violated. 
sounds small, but when you get into large international companies, all of a sudden it's worth a lot. So even the HTML coding could be considered copyrighted material. I mean, it absolutely. It, a lot of people don't know that you can view the source code with one click and see exactly how something is made. And, and I'll confess to having reverse engineered many web pages back in the day. Uh, it's pretty simple. Mm -hmm. And so imagine just deciding that you're going to dedicate yourself to finding these opportunities and then trying to monetize your specialized knowledge, essentially. And then there was Texas Instruments. Um, yeah, it's it's a Texas company headquartered in Dallas, maybe, what, two, two and a half hours west of Marshall. They basically used the Marshall Federal Court as a side hustle. They were earning upwards of 400 million bucks a year 30 years ago in the early 90s, just in patent infringement cases. Yes. That's big money. I mean, I'd like that for a side hustle. Um, this seems to me like uh, you know, a patent abuse of the courts. Well, that's where we can get into questions of what is legal, what is ethical. And from the perspective of a company like Texas Instruments, they could argue, we found all these people who are stealing our intellectual property or using it without permission. Don't we have a responsibility to our shareholders? to claim the right, the monetary benefit and right to the property that we own. From their point of view, they might argue it would be wrong if we didn't pursue these legal actions. Now, the fact that they did it in such volume, though, well, like I said, there were some people who this was their career was going out and hunting for people who were stealing intellectual property. I mean, this was mass production, basically. It, it absolutely was. They had specialized employees. This is what they did. But wait, there was much, much more to all this. Uh, a Marshall judge then figured out how to streamline all these cases. Oh. Uh, the more I read in, into that Texas Monthly article, the more fascinated I became with it. He limited the number of pages that lawyers could file in their motion. So basically, he's getting like uh, the orange juice out of the orange. No pulp, no seeds, no skin, nothing, just the juice. No fiber. Yeah, exactly. And he was <laughs> able to resolve cases in as little as 15 minutes. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that could be on Judge Judy, right? Yes, actually. <laughs> Um, and, and this is a point I think we'll come back to again in this conversation that some people may not be aware of. But procedural law is a big thing to know about. There are different ways to categorize law. One is to break it down in e into either substantive law or procedural law. Substantive law would be the, the property rules associated with the intellectual property, for example. Procedural law can get into things like what forms of evidence are allowed into the court, what constitutes hearsay, what would be a business records exception to the hearsay rule. But it can also be what are the local rules of a court. And this is something really important to know is that the rules that individual judges and courts make can impact how cases move through. And you can argue how much that impacts individual cases. It definitely does impact, on a macro level, the e economics of law. Intellectual property cases became the equivalent of a quickie divorce, basically. It's like going to Reno. 
the the rocket docket became fashionable. What a great name for it! Um, yes, and and his court became a convenience store of legal disputes. Your thoughts on this? Well, that gets us into what are the pros and cons of this kind of um, very specific form of shopping. It's essentially judge shopping. It's not just a form anymore. It is one particular human being. And some people say that there are advantages to that because that person becomes a subject matter expert, which when you think about it, that could be great. Maybe they're actually putting out the best rulings possible because they know the law, the substantive law, better than anybody else for that particular topic. However, when you have a rocket docket where it's just 15-minute cases that can be worth millions of dollars, that doesn't sound like necessarily a subject matter expert. That gets people questioning if this really is just being done for convenience. And so it starts to look like it's more of a negative. It's harder to make that subject matter expert argument at that point. This almost looks like a pro sports event because local lawyers have the home field advantage. Absolutely, especially in Texas. Yeah, they knew the judge. <laughs> they knew the room, so to speak. They, mm. they knew every aspect of the playing surface. Out-of-town companies would hire these local attorneys to represent them. Instead of bringing their out-of-town experts in, they would hire the local attorneys, knowing that their odds of winning were huge. The poor defendant had no choice but to come in and just kind of pray for the best, which usually didn't really happen. Oh, no, uh, they could also try to hire a local attorney well, themselves. Well, they could, but <laughs> but the deck was already stacked against them. Yes, uh, and there's actually a, a little Texas lawyer joke that I, I share with my business law students that I was taught my very first year of law school because I, I went to Baylor School of Law, so very good Texas law school. Uh, there is a term for selecting a jury. It's a French term. And many other places, it's pronounced close to the French original pronunciation. So you get uh, voir dire. But in Texas, if you go to a Texas law school, we are all trained to pronounce it voir dire. With, now, a, with a twang. With the twang. <laughs> yes, dire is two syllables, not one. But there's actually a strategic reason behind this. And the reason is when you're in the courthouse, if you hear somebody say it, voir dire, then your head just spins around and you immediately think, oh, you're not local. And so then you figure out what case they're on. You know that you've got the home court advantage over them because they didn't say voir dire. It's kind of like going to Llano, Texas, and insisting on calling it Yano. Yes, <laughs> or around here, um, Miami. Uh, yeah, exactly. There's no faster way to out yourself as a tourist <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> than to pronounce it correctly. <laughs> well, this, this, uh, this craziness didn't last forever. Um, what happened next? Uh, did forum shopping, and specifically for patent cases, just go away? Not at all. Um, but the game has changed. In 2011, uh, the U.S. Congress decided to get involved because they were concerned about what they were seeing in Texas and in Delaware. And so they came up with what they call the Patent Pilot Program, or the Triple P. 
And that program said that these patent cases will go to certain specific district courts, and those courts should therefore become subject matter experts. And pointedly, the, the court in Marshall, Texas, was left off the list. They were trying to pull those cases away. It, it wasn't necessarily effective, though. Then in 2016, a situation from a patent case out of Delaware ended up making it into the U.S. Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court decided they were going to make a ruling that would make it more difficult for rural courts to hear these specific kinds of cases. This is, and this is interesting, and I, this is another point I bet we'll end up circling back to later in the podcast. What the court said was that, essentially, if a company is going to use a court in a particular geographic area, then both bases for a company's citizenship have to have a geographic tie to that court. So what that means, and, and this is a point that we, the students learn here in, in business law, what citizen, where a company has its citizenship can be determined in two ways. One, what is your state of incorporation? Two, what is your principal place of doing business? A lot of companies, especially a lot of the Fortune 500, are incorporated in Delaware for historic business law procedural reasons. But the principal place of business could be Silicon Valley, so they'd be out in California. That means they're a citizen of Delaware and California. Well, what the Supreme Court said in 2016 was that for patent cases, for these intellectual property cases specifically, if you are going to go into Marshall, Texas, then you've got to be incorporated in Texas and your principal place of business has to be in the immediate geographic area too. So that changed the face of things. Has it really stopped this forum shopping for patents? Absolutely not. It's just shifted things. Now, one of the court that, courts that's hearing the most patent cases is in Fort Worth, Texas. So forum shopping still goes on, but in different ways. Um, but as we will see after the break, there is one that is going on right here in Amarillo, Texas. The MBA is the most popular graduate degree in the United States and with good reason. It leads to better jobs, promotions, and salary increases. At the Paul and Virginia Engler College of Business at West Texas A&M University, our MBA program is entirely online for when you're ready to make that move. With as few as 31 credit hours and specializations offered in five areas, you can fast track your career in as little as 18 months. Whether you're looking for a promotion or initial job placement, you'll stand head and shoulders above the competition. And because we've been teaching online since 1997, we're not the new kids on the block. Trust your education and career to dedicated faculty who are not only experts in their fields, but also old pros in the online arena. Our consistently high rankings say it all. A GMAT waiver is available. We're CSB accredited and among the most elite of business schools around the world. Reach for the stars and do it with a WT MBA in hand. For more information, find us at wtamu.edu slash cob or call 806-651-2500. From the Texas Panhandle to the world, we're here to help you reach those stars. 
For many years, Judge Mary Lou Robinson presided over the United States District Court for the Northern District of Texas. It is held in the J. Marvin Jones Federal Building on Southeast 5th in downtown Amarillo. She was known far and wide for her fairness, forthrightness, and some might say an intolerance for anyone daring to traffic in illicit substances in her jurisdiction. But she stepped down in 2016, and then-President Donald Trump nominated Matthew Kaczmarek in 2017 to be her successor. In 2019, Kaczmarek was sworn in. He had prior experience working for a law firm, then as a federal prosecutor, and lastly with the conservative Christian legal organization known as First Liberty Institute. It's not unusual for presidents to nominate judges who share their political leanings. And then something happened. Something big. A case with national implications landed on the docket to be heard in Amarillo, Texas. Joanna, walk us through everything from the Supreme Court's reversal of a landmark ruling many years ago to what found itself center stage right here. Go ahead and take the mic, please, because I know it might take a little while to dress this stage. Well, we've already laid some uh, good foundational knowledge here. We were just talking before the break about how a company can be a citizen for the point of where it can sue in multiple states. This lawsuit against the FDA seeking to overturn the FDA's approval of a drug from 23 years ago was initiated by a group out of Tennessee. But that group formed a legal business entity in Texas. That meant that they now had Texas citizenship for this organization, and therefore they could file the case in Texas. But they thought that Kazmarek would be the person most likely to rule in their favor in their case against the FDA. And just to be absolutely sure that there was no question geographically, they hired someone to be their resident agent for their new Texas business entity in an office in a building across the street from the Amarillo Federal Courthouse. Why Amarillo and why Kazmarek? We have nothing to do whatsoever with this drug or its manufacturer. Heck, most of us can't even pronounce it. It took me quite a few times to get it right. Mifepristone. Mifepristone. I think that's it, isn't it right? I've also heard Mifepristone. Close enough, right? You got all the letters in it. <laughs> yes, you can win at Scrabble. <laughs> so, so why here? I mean, was it something about Kazmarek that made him an attractive judge? Absolutely. This was done purely because of his political views that he espoused as far back as when he was in law school. Various uh, journal articles he wrote, um, the, the uh, Christian legal group that he worked for in the past, uh, all of that went into people thinking that he was the sort of individual who would rule based on his personal views. And this is, assuming that they are correct, or whether whether people are right or not, whether he did rule based on his personal views or not, 
the very fact that people think that that is a possibility is deeply concerning to me. Um, as an attorney in the United States, I, I really do believe in our legal system. And I am a huge supporter of the idea of the rule of law. It disturbs me to see how much confidence we are losing in the American judicial system. And it worries me that a situation like this, <laughs> the old phrase is, um, one should avoid even the appearance of impropriety. And it just seems like that didn't happen in this case. Maybe he really did rule on his personal views. Certainly, the group out of Tennessee has been very open about the fact that they specifically came to Amarillo because of the judge's views. And that that's a bad look, not just for Texas. That, that's concerning for confidence in our entire legal system. And then there's the fact that the case brings up a 23-year-old approval of a drug. Might a little water have passed under this bridge? So the legal phrase we have for water under the bridge is statute of limitations. And this is another concept that we talk about with our business law students here in the Angler College of Business. The statute of limitations essentially says that past a certain length of time, you cannot bring that case into court. And we have that idea in our legal system for specific reasons. If a business, well, say that, say that somebody is in a restaurant, they slip and fall, they break their leg, unfortunately, they later decide to sue the restaurant. The restaurant should have some level of predictability about when that lawsuit's going to come. If they know it could come within two or three years from the accident, they can plan for that. But what if we allow that person to come back and sue the restaurant 10 or 15 years later? How can a business prepare for lawsuits that far out? You can't. And so that's why we have a statute of limitations. We cut things off. That builds predictability into our legal system. And predictability in the legal system is almost always going to benefit our overall economy. This is a major question, though. Saying that the FDA made mistakes on a, a, a drug that it approved 23 years ago, is that even possible? And to be clear, we don't yet know the answer to that. Now, this case, a sliver of it has already gone up to the U.S. Supreme Court. But what went to the court thus far was just the question of Kazmarek saying that the drug needed to be immediately pulled from the market. And the U.S. Supreme Court has said no on that. The rest of the case, getting into things like, did the FDA not use the right approval process? And was this case barred by the statute of limitations? Also, this group out of Tennessee that formed a business entity in Texas, do they even have standing to bring this case? All those questions have yet to be determined in either the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals or the U.S. Supreme Court. So this entire situation has a very big to-be-continued label on it. And, and what would be the statute of limitations under normal circumstances? I don't know on the FDA. Um, that, that is just outside my area of expertise. Generally, if it was a state-level case, 
it's usually uh, two to three years from the point of injury or, or from the point at which the plaintiff should have been aware that an injury occurred. And I, I know judges are incapable of knowing everything or even necessarily a, a little bit about a lot um, because their job is to, to be a judge, of course. But in this case, what does Judge Kaczmarek know about drug safety and efficacy? Um, I mean, I don't doubt his legal training at all, but I did not see scientists among his credentials. Nick, that's a that, that's an interesting way to phrase it because I could take what you just said and almost use that to advocate for forum shopping. Maybe this case should have just gone to a judge who is more of a subject matter expert in FDA matters. So, you see, sometimes there is that argument for a kind of forum shopping. Touche. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems like Texas would be a good state then to file such a case, given recent legislation here banning most abortions. Uh, forum shopping much? Yes, but really historically there's been forum shopping in Texas for uh, many years, um, cases that were brought against the Affordable Care Act. Uh, again, there was forum shopping in Texas to get some of those cases <laughs> in this state. Also, again, possibly because of political leanings of certain judges. Again, I don't want to believe that, but I do recognize there's a lot that undermines confidence in our legal system. So w when this case was making headlines in the spring, a lot of local people had no clue what was going on. Uh, suddenly there were protesters here as well as reporters congregating. Amarillo hadn't had such legal notoriety at the federal courts level since 1998 when a certain TV celebrity brought her show to town. <laughs> Yes, that was before I moved back to the panhandle, but uh, I, I heard stories about uh, Oprah Winfrey and the uh, the cattle lawsuit and yeah, having to host the show here for a while. In fact, the case went on for so long. Yeah, it kind of turned into a circus. She, she yes. played that card well. Well, and interestingly enough, with Kazmarek, this may not be the last that is heard from him at the national level. Certainly a lot of people now at WT are keeping an eye on that court because, well, there's notoriety now due to this forum shopping with the lawsuit against the FDA. But keep in mind, he gets other cases into that court because they are geographically based in the Texas panhandle. So if there's, for example, a First Amendment case involving West Texas A&M University, it's going to go before Kazmarek. If there's a case involving any Title IX investigations, then that would go before Kazmarek. All of these things could be in that same court. And who knows how far First Amendment cases might end up going, but it's possible that we could hear that name, the name of that judge come up again as that case makes its way through the system. I've actually had a lot of people, though, who have been shocked when I've tried to explain to them it's not just the same court as the FDA case. It's the same judge. And then there's the plaintiff in this case who, as you said, set up shop in Amarillo just for this case and right across the street. I mean, that's a pretty <laughs> gutsy move, don't you think? 
it it's uh it, they're not trying to hide anything <laughs> and they've they've been very open about the fact that they were definitely form shopping but uh again there is a, a possible standing issue um, standing is something else that we teach our business law students here in the Engler College of Business do you have the right to be the person bringing the case into court and interestingly enough the group of doctors who started the entity that ended up suing the FDA don't don't regularly prescribe the medication they're challenging they are not patients who've had negative effects from taking the medication that they're trying to get off the market so there's this question of did they have a right to bring the case at all? Again, that's one of those issues that has yet to be looked at by the Supreme Court. I wonder how long their lease was for. <laughs> <laughs> well, interestingly enough, you don't you don't necessarily have to have a full lease. So what you can do, and a lot of companies that are incorporated in Delaware will do this, you just have to have a resident agent. That is an individual who does have a street address their job is to accept legal process if your company is sued in the state where your company is incorporated. You don't have to have an office building at all, though. You just have to pay money to somebody who does sit in a physical office. So as long as they keep paying a resident agent, they don't even need to take out a lease. And so let's talk about Kaczmarek's decision um, and, and the response locally, nationally. I'm sure a lot of people didn't take this sitting down. No, because of all those questions, uh, statute of limitations, standing, all of those things, there really are a lot of reasons to ask, should this case have even been brought? And he seemed to treat all of that as just those issues didn't matter at all and just focused on his interpretation of the FDA rules from 20 years ago. But because this is a medication that is used at the national level, and because there are these outstanding procedural law issues, this is almost guaranteed to make it into the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, as far as the local reaction, I've actually talked to a lot of people, even some friends here on campus, who still didn't know that it happened in Amarillo. <laughs> They heard that this was a ruling out of a Texas court, and I was having to explain, no, it's 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 right downtown. It's not that far from the baseball stadium and the uh, the the Globe News Center where we do a lot of performing arts. It's it's right within that radius. Well, I certainly heard it enough on lots of national podcasts, like uh, from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. I heard a about it on uh, national news outlets. They all knew where Amarillo, Texas was and where this was going down. I hit a point where every time I heard Amarillo on the news for a while, I just cringed. I followed the case very closely while it was unfolding. Um, many people in favor of his ruling loved red herrings, uh, focusing on the morality of why a person would be taking this drug in the first place. Of course, those were just mere distractions, but it's a commonly used uh, argumentative tool. Uh, you know, let's let's uh, throw attention somewhere else to, to take it away from what's really happening, uh, because the case really just centered on whether the FDA had rightly or wrongly approved a drug. Often overlooked in the discussion that anyone 
taking this drug also needed to take, and here's another tough one to pronounce, misoprostol. I, I, I Googled that. Um, yes, but, the, it's a pair of medications right, that, yeah. that have to be taken together. And, and that was not included in any of this litigation. So do you find any inherent risks in all of this? Well, just from talking to uh, friends and acquaintances who are in the medical community, I'm, I'm concerned about the health risks that are out there. Um, some people are, as you said, hyper-focused on moral questions, but those people don't always understand human anatomy and certain medical risk. I mean, there are situations where people don't want to have to take this drug, but in order to uh, save the life of a woman, it might be necessary. And that at that point, <laughs> the moral d dilemma for some people is, well, we don't want to lose a child. But there's a second level of uh, the moral question. Sometimes if the drugs aren't administered, then you could lose two lives, the mother and the child. These are not easy decisions to make. Obviously, I, I have a deep respect for everyone in the medical community. But just the fact that, that it is so layered indicates that we need to have a better understanding of the science behind everything. And I think we need to talk about the science first and then the morality second. Let's make sure we understand before we engage into what is actually a very nuanced and complicated discussion. Well, and another thing is uh, Big Pharma really needs to hire some good branding experts to come up with better names <laughs> <laughs> because it's like every uh, medicine, every compound, whatever is unpronounceable. And um, Well, you, it, when it comes to naming things, though, uh, the, the two usual bases for naming medications would be either some sort of uh, combination of names from the different chemical compounds that go into it, or frequently the last name of somebody who has worked on the drug. And maybe it's not the easiest thing to pronounce. I don't know, though. I wouldn't want to take away naming <laughs> rights of any scientist to anything. Joanna, do you see other such similar cases finding their day in court here in Amarillo? You, you mentioned First Amendment things and so forth, but let's go beyond that. If a conservative group can handpick a judge and a forum once, it could do it again. And to be fair, it could go the same way elsewhere for an alleged liberal cause appearing before a liberal judge. So let's talk about judicial reform. I'm, I mentioned earlier that um, with the intellectual property issue, Congress did attempt the, uh, the 3P, the patent pilot program. And some people are wondering, when it comes to this kind of judge shopping, should the legislative branch step in? What a lot of people don't realize, though, is that the vast majority of the power of the, this, the system that currently allows structurally for form and judge shopping comes from the judicial branch. The reason any of this form shopping is possible particularly in Texas, is because of the Fifth Circuit. Mentioned earlier, remember when we were talking again about the patent cases, that the local court made its own rules, and you talked about 
the judge even said, here's how many pages your brief can be, and I'm going to do every case in 15 minutes. That's local court rules. But the circuit can determine rules for all of the district courts in its purview. One of those rules has to do with politically charged cases. There are other circuits in the U.S. besides the Fifth Circuit where they have a rule. If it is an an individual to individual case, then fine, we'll allow if you want to do judge shopping, you all can fight that out. But if it is a major political issue, and if it's groups challenging the government on things, then we will not allow you to pick your own judge. You will come into our circuit and we will randomly toss that to one of the judges somewhere within our geographic region. But the Fifth Circuit doesn't have that rule. And as long as the Fifth Circuit continues to have a structure that allows for judge shopping, we will see judge shopping continue. And the Fifth Circuit is over federally over all of Texas. So my prediction, unless we have judicial reform from the Fifth Circuit, we will absolutely continue to see this happen. So basically, forum, judge, and jury shopping, there's that rural part, Mm -hmm. is basically just a fixture of our court system. It is. I mean, even uh, well, even at the very, very local level in Amarillo, um, and this is a geography lesson for people who have never been here and don't know, but the city of Amarillo is actually in two counties, Randall County and Potter County. And um, I've been told that the, the county line actually splits down the middle of the Coles Department store. Funny thing there, just in terms of business strategy, Because of that, one bank of cash registers is in Potter County, and one bank is in Randall County. And you and I both know, Nick, one of those counties charges a higher local sales tax. That's why that bank of cash registers is never turned on except during the holiday rush. I I mean it. They only want the, the cash registers on where there's a lower sales tax locally. Just business strategy, tactical. But we do have that county line. Well, that means if there's a car wreck in Amarillo or if there's a dispute over a will, if there's almost any kind of case, except some property cases in Amarillo, you get to decide, do you want it in Potter County, which tends to be more lawsuit friendly, or do you want it in Randall County, where the juries are tend to be a little more stingy in court cases? And it comes down to if both parties are trying to sue each other, who makes it to the courthouse first and who gets to decide where it's initially filed. So yeah, strategically, strategically, there's always going to be this kind of gameplay that goes on in the legal field. But when it gets to this level, where you have people doing political shopping for specific judges, then have we crossed the line from acceptable legal tactics into questionable ethics? And you bring in kind of implicitly, in many cases, the religious aspect, too. Right. And does any one group have a right to impose their religion, their religious views, their religious practices on others? And if you look back at the history of the United States and the U.S. Constitution, even the Declaration of Independence— The answer to that question is no. 
When we come back, we'll take a look at another Texas legal oddity. If you've been using talcum powder, you won't want to miss this part. Paying taxes is never fun, and for this reason, there's always a demand for more CPAs. Our MPA degree or Master's in Public Accounting prepares students to take the CPA exam and helps our clients navigate those tricky waters. Or you could use this as a stepping stone towards a PhD in a career in academia. Either way, our MPA will ensure that you are up to date on all of the generally accepted accounting principles and ready to toil in the world of taxation, debits, and credits. We're AA CSB accredited and among the most elite of business schools around the world. Reach for the stars and do it with the WT MPA in hand. Waivers are available for the GMAT. For more information, find us at wtamu.edu slash cob or give us a call at 806-651-2500. From the Texas Panhandle to the world, we're here to help you reach for those stars. I admit that I was completely unfamiliar with country music before I arrived here, and especially Western Swing. Some folks even call it Texas Swing because, well, Texas, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, Bob Wills is a national hero, even though he's buried in Tulsa. I have since come to appreciate the genre quite a bit, especially that music in 2-4 as well as 4-4 time that invited a dance move to be created called the Texas Two-Step. You can pop into any Texas dance hall and see folks giving it a whirl. But the phrase also has legal implications and nothing at all to do with the catchy hook-laden music. And as it turns out, a tidy little legal loophole How's that for alliteration? (laughs) Allowed companies like Johnson & Johnson to set up a shell company in Texas. And thanks to shifting some assets around, granted them an immunity card if they were ever sued. Like for solo and class action lawsuits centered on cancer-causing aspects of baby powder made from talc. Joanna, give us the case brief. Well, we are talking about the legal Texas two-step, which was invented about five years ago by a Dallas law firm. And the attorneys at that law firm have made, just by doing the Texas two-step for various companies, over $100 million in legal fees over five years. Yes, this, uh, this is a very definite legal presence now. But the Johnson & Johnson case is what it has really brought it into the national spotlight. Here's the breakdown of the Texas two-step with Johnson & Johnson. So Johnson & Johnson has different subsidiaries that own different brands, including Johnson Johnson Baby Powder. So J&J Consumer Incorporated was the company that had Johnson Johnson Baby Powder, it started to get all the lawsuits in. Currently, uh, the estimates I'm hearing are over 40,000 lawsuits having to do with Johnson Johnson baby powder. Looking at all the lawsuits, the overall parent company became concerned, this is going to hurt our stock price, and our shareholders won't like that. Okay, what do we do to protect the company and ultimately keep our shareholders happy? Let's Let's try to cut off these lawsuits like like if it was a wart on your finger can we just burn off the wart so they moved johnson johnson consumers to texas they just changed their state of incorporation and made 
Johnson Johnson consumers a citizen here. Then they used a particular Texas business statute. We won't get into all the complexities, but it's the Texas divisive merger statute that allows you to split a Texas company into pieces. So they split it into the new J&J consumer, which has all the assets, and then LTL, which has all the liabilities, including all of the lawsuits. Now, LTL does have one asset that we'll get back to a little later in, in the discussion that ended up being crucial. So once they'd split it out into two companies, good company with the assets, bad company with the bad liabilities, they moved everything back to the state of, well, they, uh, they wanted to be in with uh, ultimately North Carolina. And this was because of bankruptcy forum shopping. There, <laughs> it never ends. <laughs> Nick is shaking his head. You, you can't see it. But yes, it, it all ties back in. Yes, there was forum shopping in North Carolina in addition to the, the law shopping that was done to create the Texas two-step here. So they moved the case, uh, the, the bad company, to North Carolina and filed for bankruptcy. The reason was there was a judge there who was inclined to rule favorably when companies did this sort of maneuver and say, oh, you acted in good faith. You can proceed with your bankruptcy. But the system there was getting a little tired of all these bankruptcy cases. And so LTL's Chapter 11 bankruptcy was actually moved back to New Jersey where the other part of the company had been incorporated after it had been moved back from Texas. And that New Jersey uh, Third Circuit Court has said that at least for right now, that frankly, it's still up in the air whether or not they, the bankruptcy was filed um, in good faith or in bad faith. Currently, the Third Circuit has said Johnson & Johnson um, LTL is not in financial distress. Therefore, it should not file for bankruptcy. But it left the door open that could change. Well, as I understand it, the Texas two-step, as it were, gives not just current immunity, but also some retroactive legacy immunity to, like, previous lawsuits filed against J&J. Um, and, and they needed it because, as you said, there were like 40,000 cases or more, most of which were filed singularly and had to be fought one at a time. That takes a lot of resources. Oh, yes. And it was costing the company billions. By being able to declare bankruptcy of this shell corporation, it basically they were trying to shield their primary corporate assets held elsewhere. What are your thoughts on this? I mean, this just sounds like a lot of smoke and mirrors to me. Well, and that's an argument some parties are making legally is that it has been smoke and mirrors. Um, one aspect, though, that we discussed in my business law class this semester, um, a lot of students very wisely had the question, why did this not all get rolled into one class action lawsuit? And the reason is that these cases where it uh, the claim is that prolonged use of Johnson Johnson baby powder can result in cancer. Well, 
the cases are so different. How long were you using the baby powder? Where were you using the baby powder? What kind of cancer? It's not, it, it, it doesn't lend itself to a traditional class action lawsuit. So it has to be these individual suits instead. And that was one of the things that alarmed Johnson Johnson so much and made them willing to try the Texas two-step. I, like you, always tell my students that just because something is legal doesn't necessarily make it ethical. And that's especially true in my field of marketing because we can say one thing, like a food has a lot of fiber or something good like that, but then kind of conveniently forget to tell them about all the sugar and other <laughs> bad things in it. That make it taste good. Oh, yeah. As long as it tastes good, it's all that matters. <laughs> so was J&J simply trying to dodge its responsibility to provide safe products to its consumers? Well, to answer that, we need to uh, talk a little bit about where, uh, where the talc and baby powder comes from. So these lawsuits uh, are based on the idea that cancer-causing asbestos is in Johnson & Johnson baby powder. And the natural question is, well, how did that happen? My initial thought when I heard about the cases was, was there asbestos somewhere in a manufacturing facility, you know, in old ceiling tiles, and somehow it fell into a vat of baby powder? And it turns out, no, the ethical question goes much further back. It goes back to the initial mining of the talc. So talc forms um, underground in, in mines, and it forms a crystalline structure that chemically is very, very similar to asbestos. And structurally, the crystal formations are very similar too. They will form in the same mines. You'll have one zone that is pure talc. You'll have another zone that is pure asbestos. But then there's that little bit in the middle. So what likely happened was people were just trying to make their quota working for Johnson Johnson, how many pounds of talc can you get out of the mine? And I'm sure that there were some zones clearly designated. If you go past this point, it's no longer pure talc. Well, if somebody was just trying to make a quota, you can guess there was probably temptation to go past that line into that gray zone where maybe there was a little bit of asbestos mixed in. Well, how much is too much? How far into that zone did they go where the talc and the asbestos mixed? And it was really, it makes for a, a good ethical conversation with business law students because what we find in companies, one of the most frequent causes for ethical violations is when employees are trying to meet expectations like quotas. I think that's where the initial ethical problem occurred. We can talk about ethics versus legality on the whole Texas two-step. We can talk about Dallas attorneys making hundreds of millions of dollars doing this. But the initial ethical problem, I think, happened at the very beginning for Johnson & Johnson. So in this case, the, the powder that soothes you could just as easily be the poison that kills you. Absolutely. And it is important to uh, point out, too, that asbestos has some positive uses We've made a determination in the U.S. over the years, unfortunately, because we've seen some horrific cancer cases, that the, the bad tends to outweigh the good. But asbestos historically has been a phenomenal fire retardant. That's why it's in so many older buildings. 
I could go over to the Panhandle Plains Museum right now here on campus and ask to see one of the old fire suits that was used around the oil and gas leases. And they would pull out a suit that's made completely of asbestos. It protected firefighters for a very long time. But in certain situations, it can cause cancer. And when you are dealing in particular with very, very fine particulates that can be absorbed through the skin or through very thin membranes on the body or that could be inhaled, that's when we can get into some serious medical issues. You probably don't know this, but the building we're in, the classroom center, um, it was completely renovated starting in late 2007. We moved back in in 2009. It had to be completely gutted down to the bare concrete, yeah. aside from the terrazzo <laughs> floors in the hallways, because this place was swimming in asbestos. It was built, I want to say 1967. Uh, we need a fact checker to double check on that one. But that's about the time the building was made, and asbestos was perfectly legal. It was normal back then. Absolutely. They, yeah, they it was a it, fire retardant. Yeah, exactly. It was behind light switches. It was underneath floor tiles. It was everywhere. Well, and I, I keep hoping, just because we, we are such a vibrant, growing community here on campus, we do need more building space. I keep waiting for them to bring the building Old Ed, the old education building back online. It's beautiful, one of the oldest buildings on campus, but what's one of the problems? Asbestos. Exactly. Yeah. So why do you think Texas had this Texas two-step law in the first place? I mean, is this our version of how and why so many Fortune 500 companies incorporated in Delaware? Not quite as elegant as Delaware because <laughs> the way this is set up, Companies won't necessarily stay Texas entities, so you're not going to get the benefit of any any sales or franchise tax from these companies that come in and leave, but you do get those quick initial filing fees. That's about all the benefit the state's really getting. But again, there are some Texas lawyers who've been benefiting Yeah, you quite said a in hundreds of millions, yes. so yeah, it's a profit center. <laughs> if anything, the Texas two-step uh, illustrates just how easy it is to form a corporation here, even if you really don't do anything necessarily, I mean, other than to serve maybe as a, a way to dodge damages? That is one possibility. But it's not just Texas that has interesting business laws like that. I mean, other states have situations, uh, oh, there was one state in the South for a while where um, they had they charged lower fees for any vehicles that were company vehicles as opposed to being personal vehicles. Well, a bunch of people in other states figured that out, opened up companies in that state, transferred ownership of their RVs into that company, and then ended up paying less on their annual licensing fees for their personal RVs than they would if it was licensed and plated in their home state. So these, these kinds of strategic and tactical things happen all over the country all the time. You mentioned uh, a phrase uh, a few minutes ago, financial distress. Doesn't the company have to demonstrate in cases like this some financial distress? And, and what exactly is financial distress? And for that matter, was J&J &J really not declaring things in good faith? Excellent question. So that is part of the Texas Two-Step, and this is actually... The specific thing that the Third Circuit Court in New Jersey is keeping an eye on. So 
financial distress in its simplest form is I don't have enough assets to deal with all of my liabilities. In other words, my minuses are greater than my pluses. So in order to pay my creditors, I've got to reorganize the business and reorganize how I'm going to pay them. Therefore, may I file bankruptcy? And if it's as clear cut as that, the court will usually say yes. Well, there is also this question under the U.S. Bankruptcy Code, though, of whether or not the bankruptcy was filed as a, as a fraudulent attempt to get around certain problems in order to show that you're not trying to commit fraud, you have to show that the company does have some assets. So here's what happened with the Texas two-step with Johnson Johnson. And this gets back to what I mentioned earlier about how this company, uh, LTL, did have the one asset. The one asset that it had was a promise from the good company that it would have a certain amount of money on reserve to pay for all those lawsuits. When the judge with the Third Circuit looked at it, he looked at that money that was pledged to pay for the lawsuits, looked at the current claims against the, the bad company, as it were, and said, I don't see that there's actual financial distress. You've got more than enough assets to pay off the liabilities. Why are you filing for bankruptcy? So there's a little bit of an irony there that the very agreement, the document that the Texas attorneys drafted to show that this was a legitimate company with at least one asset is the very document that the court is using to say, I don't think you can file for bankruptcy. But where it stands now is the judge has said, however, if I see more claims come against you, then I'll start to think maybe your liabilities do, you know, exceed your assets. And then maybe I will let you file for bankruptcy. And now it's getting weird. <laughs> Ultimately, J&J's case kind of unraveled. What, what happened next? Well, it's in a holding pattern right now. Uh, Johnson Johnson's claiming that they could have now up to 60,000 lawsuits. And they're trying to make the argument that they do have genuine financial distress. And this whole Texas two-step process should be allowed to go forward in bankruptcy court. I've read some legal commentators who are questioning um, Johnson Johnson's claim of more lawsuits. And some of the more cynical commentators said, I have noticed that there are actually more television and um, streaming service commercials if you think you may have been harmed by Johnson Johnson baby powder, then contact this law firm. The more cynical commentators are saying, I'm wondering if Johnson and Johnson is actually putting out some of those commercials themselves to increase the number of people suing them just so that they can cut the lawsuit dollar amount off at a certain limit. It's, it's fascinating. It's also, it's starting to feel absolutely crazy though. Another of my aphorisms is that every law invites someone to find a workaround. Oh, yes. Well, what's to stop other such inventive companies and their lawyers from finding other liability shields? Absolutely nothing. I mean, even if this particular, even if we stop the dance on the Texas two-step tomorrow, 
somebody would find a different tune to play and the dancers would take the floor again. You know, people are always going to look for these strategic opportunities. Do you think J&J's undoing here in Texas, which may be temporary, may be permanent, might keep others from trying to do the same? Or, or is this precedent enough to stop the music? It's possible this will give some other companies pause. Because this, this hyper-scrutiny now by a judge over the question of what constitutes financial distress is going to make this entire process more complex. And if it's more complex, that means it's going to be more expensive. So is the cost of doing the Texas two-step really going to be worth the potential benefit going forward? That's what more companies are going to consider. And also, too, this entire situation where, you know, they tried form shopping in North Carolina and no, the case got transferred to New Jersey. I think that more than anything has some companies worried. And is it possible that some companies truly are too big to fail, at least in the courtroom, as it were? Because if they were crushed by these lawsuits and all the damages, that their demise would cause even more suffering to the broader economy? To me, when I hear the phrase, too big to fail, I, I, I don't I, I generally don't even worry about, oh, if this company was gone, what would be the cost to the economy? I take the idea of too, being too big to fail quite literal because there are some of these companies, even if you go after them for not just compensatory damages, which would pay for all the medical bills and the lost wages, but even if you go after them for punitive damages, it's still just a drop in a bucket to a lot of these companies. We, we see similar things with a lot of the federal fines that would be levied against companies. Uh, you know, a fine that could be just destructive for a small mom and pop business is absolutely nothing to the larger corporations. It's to the point where there are so many cases and so much money on the line, it could negatively affect their stock price. Okay, now they feel like they've got a little bit of a rash and maybe they need to itch it. But it's still not something that is going to have them, you know, worried about a catastrophe. And also, you have situations, too, where in a lot of states you've got tort reform that actually caps the punitive damages and sometimes even the compensatory damages. Well, when you've got caps on damages, large companies... <laughs> can kind of laugh it off. It maybe maybe too big to fail's not the best phrase. Maybe it's too big to hurt. We can't even wound some of them. We have just had an amazing tour de force of Texas at, at, at least in the courts. It it's enough to make you consider asking the band to play a slow dance song because this all kind of makes your head spin after a while. I know it certainly did for me in doing all, all the background reading I needed to, to at least be a little bit conversational here. Thank you, Joanna, for reprising your first appearance here on Buff Speak. Give us your best shot once more. Well, particularly to all of our students, if you want to change the world for the better, you have to learn first how the world operates. And that's what we're here to help you with. 
You've been listening to Buff Speak from the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University. Our executive producer is Justin Lovell, and Allison Hunter is our associate producer. Our co-editors are Maverick Evans and Paul Torres. Lindsay Bjork is our director of marketing and outreach initiatives, which includes overseeing Buff Speak. Dr. Jeffrey Babb is director of accreditation and is our technical consultant. Finally, Dr. Amjad Abdullah is dean of the college. You can find us online at wtamu.edu cob for more information about our programs. Be sure to check out our many academic offerings. Come for the quality, stay for the small classes, affordable tuition, and friendly approachable professors. And look online at our faculty blog, profspeak.com, for more insights. You can listen to BuffSpeak on your favorite podcast portal, as well as on our website, buffspeak.biz. And if you like what you've been hearing, don't be afraid to share us with your friends, colleagues, and family. Word of mouth has always been the best form of advertising. Until next time, love one another. For the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University, I am Dr. Nick Gerlich. And as always, go Buffs! Buff Speak.